Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. The 2008 financial crisis seemed to hit American landscape out of nowhere, but in reality, it was both an inevitable conclusion of 40 years of Wall Street misconduct and a warning for the meltdown that threatens to engulf all of us now. In this gripping original five-part docuseries, The Con, filmmaker Patrick Lovell investigates what happened, beginning with the personal stories, including the foreclosure of his own home in Utah and the suicide of a 91-year-old African-American widow in Akron, Ohio, before zooming out and examining the corrupt system that doomed the United States to government-funded bailouts that would only perpetrate a predatory system. I'm gonna leave it there because we have a lot to cover, trust me. The film is called The Con, and we're joined today by the producer and co-creator of this wonderful project, along with Eric Vaughn, uh, the director and writer, and that would be Patrick Lovell, Patrick, welcome to Film School Radio. Mike, it's, a, it's, it's really a great honor to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I will just gush a little bit before we get into the heart of our interview, because this is a five-part series that runs around six hours in length, and I truly believe that this thing should be mandatory viewing at every school of economics, every political science class. There are so many things in this documentary that kind of uh, cover so much of the world we live in today. Thank you very much for your work here. What inspired the con? Well, I think, uh, Mike, the most important thing that I could ever hope to hear from someone who's seen it is to understand about the intersectionality of now uh, because of just the crisis we're right in the midst of. Um, But the reason we are in this crisis is what didn't happen before to make right all the wrongs that led up to the 2008 great financial crisis. And like millions of other people, I, I got swept up in this and I was buried in a tsunami of economic wreckage. My colleague, Eric and I, actually, we were uh, co- co-producers on a television show where we were giving away houses all over the country in the uh, time period of 2006, seven and eight. And uh, we didn't realize it at the time, but we were actually, on a television show that was a front for what was going to come and ultimately bury me. So the irony didn't stick into my head until like seven years later when my colleague Eric said, this is what we were a part of. And it was like, it hit me like a ton of bricks because I got buried. I went from a really good uh, salary, um, senior position overseeing a project that was a, a real deal television project, a national network production. I've been a producer for a very long time, college educated, worked in the systems of Hollywood and I understand systems. I mean, I studied political science and I understand how things are supposed to work. Um, And I always believed in the integrity of law. I mean, I guess I always thought that, you know, we're a nation of equality of law and uh, you know, that in the end, I mean, I'm I'm a product of the eighties. And so of course we grew up knowing about Pablo Escobar and Michael Milken and all of those types of things. But we also saw, you know, in the end, massive, uh, conclusions, right? And let's say Milken um, initially was set up for Rico, but um, I guess maybe at that time, maybe it was the Hollywood version of it all, but it just always seemed like in the end, bad guys would meet the long arm of the law. And that's kind of the world I came from. So 
in the aftermath of the great financial crisis, I mean, nothing was adding up to me. Um, and again, I'm a business guy, so I understand contracts. I knew what kind of loan I supposedly got into. I was in my first home. I had a young family. I was about to be 40 years old. I wasn't a kid. And I believed in responsibility and accountability. And I would never have gotten into a loan that I didn't think I could afford to pay. And now all of a sudden on the backside of the 2008 um, collapse when Lehman Brothers went sideways and everything that followed, my ability to make money evaporated. And so then I'm plugged into this foreclosure situation. And as I'm interacting with the powers that be at that time in my own life, nothing made sense. It was like, wait a second, I'm getting played here. This is not, and the worst part of it is that I'm watching the network news, I'm watching the echo chambers, I'm reading the New York Times, I'm reading the Washington Post, I'm reading everything I can get my hands on. I'm listening to Obama because I believed he was the white knight that was going to have an FDR moment at that time period on this uh, mandate by the people after all of the mayhem that preceded him. And I was expecting for the system to reboot and we'd all live happily ever after. Oh, man, was I wrong. Next thing I know, it goes from bad to worse, from worse to more worse. And it was, it was a calamity that I could never in a million years do justice to because my life was practically over. And the next thing I know, I start asking questions because I'm looking at the media and it's not adding up to my experience. And I called my colleague, Eric Vaughn, and I said, hey, man, we got to sort this thing out. And one thing led to another. Um, we partnered with another wonderful human being um, who, who, who basically thought at that time, he was like, look, if you can figure out how we went up by and for the people to up by and for the corporation, I might be interested. And that began a, a thread that we pulled on that led to literally 12 cross-country trips around this country, aggregating this enormous truth that we discovered. And it took us literally probably when all told somewhere in the nine year uh, time span, but about six years on this project specifically. So it was a mammoth effort. In the film, we see um, there's a mention of Addie Polk uh, by Dennis Kucinich, a congressman from Ohio. He mentions her specifically, her, what happened to her. Let me, let me back up and say the film, which all great documentaries do. I have yet to see one that, that, doesn't do uh, justice to focusing on something that we that's relatable, what I call the micro of some particular issue or some particular aspect of someone's life, and then uses that to kind of pull back and see the macro, to see the big picture. And you focus on Addie Polk in this film at the beginning, and she's sort of a thread, her, her life and her story through the film. Um, and I thought it was very effective. So how did you come across Addie Polk and I got to give all the credit to uh, my colleague, Eric Vaughn. Um, and, and it came by way of um, a, a miracle and a tragic miracle. And it's just the most confounding scenario. So I'm a voracious reader. And so after the collapse of 2008, I couldn't read enough. I was trying to figure out all of the dimensions of what was going on. Because again, I said like it didn't add up and it didn't uh, correlate to my experience. And so one of the writers that I was reading a lot of at that time was a gentleman by the name of Matt Taibbi from Rolling Stone magazine. And in a number of different articles, he had identified a few whistleblowers that made a lot of sense, but yet there wasn't a congruency between their stories. And I was like, wait a second, this piece fits that piece and that piece that fits this piece. And so I called all of these amazing whistleblowers and I started to learn that their stories were so much more 
than I had um, discovered in those particular articles. And so we started down the path of building our documentary series um, because it was that time there was a revolution in, in, in documentary series because of another thing that my colleague Eric Vaughn discovered. It was called uh, The Lives and Deaths of Robert Durst that aired on HBO. And it showed that you could do long form documentary contact in a, in a, in a crime investigation way um, that would piece it together like, you know, all the wonderful uh, noir films that we all grew up with. And uh, we thought, oh, that might be the way to tell the story. And so we started down this pathway of telling the story of the correlations between these whistleblowers. But the whole time Eric Vaughn was saying, wait a second, none of this really makes sense to me now. Because he said, why wouldn't they convict this under RICO? It seems like this is racketeering and corrupt influences, right? Like the mob. It just seemed like there's so many different parts of the story. Why wouldn't we build this around a RICO conviction? Because we couldn't find one, right? And so the next thing I know, Eric is relocating his studio to Akron, Ohio, because his wife was from there and they wanted to relocate. And as he's in the process of that, because he was in Southern California, he came across this article in the New Yorker magazine about Addie Polk. And he said, do you mind if we, we, we investigate this a little bit? Because by that time, we had hooked up with a gentleman by the name of William K. Black, who was the senior investigator, general counsel for the Office of Theft Supervision during the SNL crisis. And he's with a lot of courageous people within the system, were able to manifest 30,000 criminal referrals in the SNL crisis that led to over 1,000 co convictions of white-collar uh, executives, including Charles Keating, who was the biggest bankruptcy at the time from Lincoln Financial out of Chicago in the Keating Five. And I'm covering a lot of ground to answer your question because it's just a miracle that we got to this place with, with Addy. Because when we talked to Bill Black initially, he started to teach us a lot of things about this crime that we didn't understand. But he started with this notion that the industry modeled its behavior on predation. So it would target in their own words. The weak, the meek, and the ignorant. And at the very top of that list were African-American widows who had equity in their homes. Let's call that low-hanging fruit for really bad guy lenders, okay? So they had targeted Addie. And ultimately, what Eric discovered was that Addie, when faced with eviction from a foreclosure, being 91 years old and facing homelessness, she chose to shoot herself in the chest five times. She wound up dying of complications uh, from that self-inflicted shooting. And it's amazing that she didn't die immediately. I still don't understand how that happened. But Addie Polk, as we pulled that thread, she had lived in that house for five decades, four decades, more than that. And she owned her home outright with her husband. They were the evolution of the agrarian South, African-Americans in the agrarian South uh, uh, escaping Jim Crow. And they went to the industrial Midwest where they got jobs in the rubber factories where they could afford to own their home. And they did. And that was a huge achievement going from Jim Crow, of course, in slavery before that to owning a piece of your American dream. And now five decades later, Addie Polk is faced with a con uh, eviction from the house that she lived in that long. And she ends up shooting herself. So. Eric set it all up to where we were going to start plugging that story in as, as kind of the, the bottom-up approach, because he wanted to build it as a, a crime story. And as we started to detangle the details of her story, we discovered, because we had to shoot for the reenactment, the sheriff that actually showed up that day 
to Victor and he didn't want to go on camera because he'd already told the story and everything else. But thanks to a, a crack associate producer of ours who was incredibly tenacious and then Eric following up, we finally got Sheriff Don Fothery uh, on camera to tell the story. And after he finished the interview, all we wanted to know is what he, what he did the day that he came to a Victor and he explained it. And uh, at the end of that interview, as he's taking off his mic, he says, there's some people that I think I want you guys to talk to. And the next thing he does is he turns it on to this uh, story of this white collar task force that was put in play by the attorney general of Ohio, who were able to pick up the evidence of this growing pandemic in the region. And they were able to put all the pieces together and they decided to run with a RICO conviction of a small level player that was doing the exact same thing that the two big to fail banks were doing nationwide. That was David Willen. And they got a RICO conviction as, and as far as we know, is the only one that exists in the country. So we found the evidence that the country could have acted in a way to criminally prosecute what turned out to be a crime that destroyed millions, and they didn't. We're speaking with uh, Patrick Lovell, the, the uh, producer, as well as our guide through this amazing documentary film called The Con. It is about the 2008 financial collapse, the near collapse, according to the experts in the field of banking, uh, near collapse of the entire world's banking system, and how at the time, I remember very clearly, the explanations were, we, who could have seen this happening? Oh my God, a lot of this sort of the clutching of the pearls. We have no idea how we got here, a lot of that. And so, but we have to pour a lot of money into saving these immensely powerful banks to keep them whole again. Does that sound right to you, uh, Patrick? Is that what, is that what we heard in 2008? It was, absolutely, it was absolutely perfect the way you described that. And it's also the problem, right? Because what that enabled them to do in a crisis ultimately was they had to save the financial system supposedly, right? That's going to save the American people. That's the way it was kind of built. Right. Meanwhile, the American people have no idea what constituted the crisis they were in the midst of. And they weren't getting the story like me, right? They weren't getting the story from media or the institutions. And if we were, we were getting bits and pieces. So in the, in the, in the, in the aftermath of the crisis, there has been a cottage industry of an amazing array of projects. Some got it better than others. Of course, right in the aftermath, um, the first uh, project that came through that, that was just incredible was Inside Job. But Inside Job, and it won Academy Awards, and of course, Charles uh, Ferguson, you know, he got up in front of the world and said, look, there hasn't been any convictions. I remember that. You know, he said, this is, this is a travesty. But yet, I, don't, I think everybody's kind of like, well, wait, don't we have a system to like take care of this? Well, yeah. And you identified probably one of the most shocking things of this never-ending shocking story was that the people in power that the media continued to allow to speak, right? Like, let's say the former uh, uh, Fed Reserve Chairman, Alan Greenspan, or Obama or whomever else. And of course, let's remember, Obama came in on a people's mandate, right? Change we could so supposedly believe in whatever that change might have been. So the first thing he did in his objective of change was to put all the same bad guys that created this monstrosity in to clean it up. But you and I didn't know that, right? We thought they were the masters of the universe. We thought they were the wizards of Wall Street. We thought they were all these superlatives that, you know, everybody in media had been, you know, coronating these guys for like the previous 15 years, and they were untouchable. But meanwhile, we don't understand that they all knew what was happening. Greenspan especially, 
and the thing about Greenspan is that he was the ultimate guy that could have stopped this thing. And he was warned by everybody in the system over and over and over exactly what happened, especially by one hero by the name of Ned Gramlich, who told him he was on the board of the Federal Reserve, right? So he's at that level. And, and, and Greenspan told him to drop it, is what he told him. And eventually, in the aftermath, after this huge collapse, millions and millions of people decimated by the system, trillions of dollars transferred, Greenspan gets to say, in the New York Times and all of the other places of credibility, nobody saw it coming. It's an absolute lie. There's one thing that an economist said, a Nixon era economist said, that I think is appropriate. He said that an unsustainable trend is not sustainable. And, and he was an economist, right? And, and that's exactly what this was. But nobody cared because everyone was getting rich. Well, that, and there's even more now, right? There's right. been more revelations over the course of the last little while, especially as it relates to now with the CARES Act and who's administering it and why and that sort of thing. But um, you kind of have to really understand the nuances and the details of who did what and when to even get there, right? So to go back in your your sort of uh, eloquent um, supposition there that, that, that teased this whole thing up, we're always intrigued with the C-suites and right, right. You know, these Ivy League kind of people that, you know, um, do this malfeasance and get away with it. But it's, a lot of the times, white collar crime comes across as a victimless crime. And again, going back to my colleague, Eric Vaughn, he just, he was like, no, man, the, the real people are devastated by this. This is so far from a victimless crime. And of course, because I lived through it, I understood that, right? But um, that's why we had to build it from the ground up. And when you discover that this whole system really starts with predatory lending, and it was just predatory lending that morphed out of the communities of color uh, that would have eventually engulf everybody because it was so profitable. And like you said, everybody was making money. So, you know, at the time I heard guys, uh, for example, on camera say things like, what was the, the, the commonality, the refrain that they would always say? If I don't do it, somebody else will. That's pretty much it. Yes, that's part of it. But the other part is it, it's going to be somebody else to have to deal with the other true shoe drops. So you right. play ball the way you play ball until you don't, right? right? Little did anybody know at that time, especially in all of the hierarchies of this whole thing, that the Federal Reserve was going to step in. And it wasn't $750 billion to uh, bail out the economic system through the Trouble Assets Relief Program. It was a whopping $29 trillion. Right. They pumped into the system for people to have zero prosecutions and it to be a victimless crime. I'm going to ask you a question. I don't know if you'll be able to answer, but that is, I read recently that if the U.S. government had just simply paid off every bad mortgage in America at the time this happened, when they had a sense of how many mortgages, how many people were underwater, right, if, they had just, if they had just paid them off, the U.S. government said, we're going to pay everything off that we would have been way, way, way better off than what we ended up with. Is that? I don't know the, I don't know the exact figures from that perspective, but let's just try to illustrate it this way, right? So a lot of this stuff comes together because of policy. So what we learned through our process, and again, staying with the criminology of this whole thing, sure. is that what we deciphered, what we, we, we came to understand, is that the system came to be because of the three Ds. It starts with deregulation, and then it's followed by desupervision, and then decriminalization. Right. So what that just means is if you're above the line, you can do whatever you want deceptively, 
And if you don't, and if you don't, you know, the world doesn't know what you're doing, you can Ponzi scheme the heck out of this and don't leave a trail and plausible deniability through all sorts of different shell operations and every, nobody's at fault because everybody's at fault sort of thing. And then you get to walk away with $29 trillion, right? So, so, but, but let's think about it from this perspective to your point. When the first, I'd say major domino of deregulation happened out after all this stuff happened, a big portion of it in the Clinton administration. A lot of it happened before with Reagan, of course, leading to it. In fact, you can go back as far as the Clinton, uh, the Carter administration based on the deregulation of interest rates that, that led to this whole thing. But ultimately, by the time you get to the Clinton administration, which I think if you're following me, you'll understand that the only bipartisan thing that uh, both parties have been agreed upon uh, this entire time is corruption. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the one thing that they're bipartisan about. Because when you get to the end of the Clinton administration, they ended up doing this, um, this they got rid of Glass-Steagall, and then yes. they created the Commodity Futures Modernization Act. And to give you an idea of the volume, it was, I think, in the neighborhood of $13 trillion in 1998. And by the way, that was when long-term capital management destroyed Russia on creating a, a run on the Russian ruble, which leads to a lot of this problem downstream with Putin. But um, eventually, um, by the time you get to the 2008 great, great financial crisis, the derivatives market was $600 trillion. Right. We're talking what? I mean, that's, that's seven years? Right. This whole thing blew up based on selling sawdust securities through illegal reps and warranties to a global market. Absolutely. There's so many things in the con. There's so many different threads to pull on. And uh, it is a curtain. It pulls back the curtain on a world that uh, few of us have ever had an opportunity to be uh, up close and personal to. I happen to have worked in a savings and loan, a failed savings loan here in Orange County that that built people out of about $80 million. That was small change, but it was part, it was in the same, it was Keating. He was one of the Keating people. Absolutely. One of the, yeah. I, well, I all the great frauds, they're born in Orange County from what we've learned. Orange County is the mother of everything. I, it is. There's so, well, uh, there's an, that's another discussion, but I was a computer operator and 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 this this the owner of the the savings and loan was just going to his money manager and and getting himself these ten thousand dollar money whatever they're called an instrument essentially he was pr- he was printing his own money literally wow. his wow. name was yeah I'll, some of this another discussion don't forget Orange County went bankrupt because of uh, fraudulent derivatives by Deutsche Bank uh, in what the late nineties and that's that's another variation of this you know right. So, right, you would, you would. There's a, there's a Deutsche Bank at the origin story of this particular story too. You, you, you mentioned at the very beginning of the film. One other culprit in here. This is a big one for me. Phil Graham on his way out the door, literally at midnight, on his way out the door. Amen. He, he crushed Glass Steagall. Well, that was the Commodity Futures Modernization Act. And who was, was in the pockets of? And by the way, who was his wife? Do you remember who his wife was? She, uh, I, I did know at the time. I forgot now. Wendy Lee Graham was on the board of directors for Enron. Yeah, so she was able go. to, in that fell swoop, they got rid of all the derivatives is calamity because they wanted to do the future. So Enron was the same story. So you'll get this better than anyone, really, because you've been there the whole time. The great financial crisis is the third act of the SNL crisis. Yes. Yes, it is. And one last thing, this will be my last comment, because uh, I, I'm old enough to have remembered, uh, you know, I grew up in the in the 60s and 70s. There was an economist I heard 30, 35 years ago on the radio, and he said that when the when so-called greatest generation dies, the transference of wealth to their children 
will be the largest transference of, of wealth in the history of the world, right? The greatest generation rode the inflation train, housing, education, all of it, and they benefited greatly. There will be the largest transference of wealth to that generation. And he predicted at that time, he said, there are going to be people who are going to want that money more than those than those parents want to give it to their own kids. And, and I think that this is kind of in that same vein of there is this huge bubble of money that was going, that was out there and they saw advantage to take, they, they were able to take advantage of that. Well, when I, when I hear you say that I'm, I'm reminded of George Carlin and he says, it's a big club and you're not in it. There's a, there's a <laughs> wonderful, uh, uh, you know, soliloquy that he, he did years and years ago and he, he understood the whole thing and he, and, but, but the way it fits into what you're talking about and into where we are now, right? Yeah. Yeah. It gets worse each time. Yes, it does. Because it's not held accountable. That's right. It's profitable. What are people going to do if they make out like bandits? Are they going to stop if yeah. they don't be, if they're not held accountable? So we're hoping with our mission, I mean, is to just really simplify what isn't that complicated. It's, it's, it's a criminal conspiracy with go. a lot of people that have perverse incentives yeah. that are willing to do the wrong thing because they have to. And until people understand that the fish rots from the head, yes. and that, the, that we can stop this. In fact, you know, one thing I want to leave you with if, if we're coming to the close of this is that yeah. On one hand, you've got in our story, the whistleblowers who got it right. And they had C-suite views as to what was happening. And so they tried to stop it and they got marginalized and their careers destroyed by doing the right thing. Right. That's another tragedy of this story. So many people tried to end this before it got spun out of control. And that goes for the people that went to Alan Greenspan, for example. But the same thing happened in the regulatory side. Right. So you have... On our, we have the former director, uh, assistant director of investigations for the FBI, third in command at the FBI behind Mueller and behind Comey. Uh, during the Bush administration, he literally had this thing dead to rights, at least on the predatory side. He creates a national dragnet and ultimately gets shut down by Alberto Gonzalez, who was the AG at the time. And what's so shocking about that, it's actually, if you know the SNL crisis, it's, it's, it's parallel because... He said, we got to use the resources to go after pornography. That's what Lincoln was saying about the SNL crisis. You got to go after pornography while I'm raping everybody behind the scenes financially. Same thing happened. And you got to scratch your head during the Bush administration. And you're like, well, wait a second. How is that even possible? You know, most of us would think like because Bush is out of Texas, that Exxon's the biggest contributor. It turns out out of your own county, California, it was Roland Arnall and AmeriQuest who was Bush's largest contributor. I know. I know. Believe me. I've, I've lived here for 40 years. I know these people <laughs> and I know how they operate. I know how they think. So this is why this resonates with me. Film The Con is amazing. It is going to be streaming beginning on August 7th in virtual theaters, as well as there's a premiere on Wednesday, August 5th at the, for the first episode. A panel discussion and conversation will follow it. Please look for this film. I'll leave you with one last thing, Patrick, and that is billionaires now have a lot more in common with with each other than the than the countries that they're from i think that this is part of this culture that you are beginning they're sort of identifying well the corporations overran nation states and i hope your viewer your your listeners can can take this uh, away from from this interview with you and i really appreciate your time look i'm an entrepreneur i believe in the free market i believe but i believe in integrity i believe in fair markets i believe in competition 
I believe in if you do the right things, you succeed. If you do the wrong things, you fail. It's just the opposite because of what you described. The founders knew this from the very beginning. When you have absolute power, you have absolute corruption. And I'll leave you guys with one thought here. Frederick Bossiat um, in the 17th century France um, framed it this way. He said, when a group of men in society discover plunder for power, they create a legal system to authorize it and a uh, moral code to uh, glorify it. If that's not what we're in the midst of, I don't know what else is. So we're coming from the outside to try to bring the truth to the American people. Tens of millions of people got wiped out. They deserve to know the truth. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Patrick Lovell. Uh, the film, again, is The Con. Look for it. It's uh, being released through Abramo, uh, Rama. Abramo Rama. You can all sign up at thecon.tv and get updates on everything we're going to do with it. And your distributor is Abramo Rama. They're just amazing. And our, our PR company is fantastic, uh, Falco. So thank you, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Come to Orange County. I'd love to have a cup of coffee with you sometime. That's, uh, thank you so much, Patrick. I surf there as much as possible. <laughs> well, good for you. Take care, man. All right. Take care. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.